This morning we read the story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem from Mark 11. And that's what we remember on Palm Sunday. Jesus entering Jerusalem. But Jesus coming into Jerusalem isn't really something you can say that we celebrate. Who cares that Jesus went into Jerusalem? How many times did Jesus go into Jerusalem in his life? Lots, right? Do we celebrate all of those? No. There's one particular time that we sort of celebrate that he came into Jerusalem, right? But to the extent that we celebrate, it's, it's only because Jesus was intentional in coming to the city where he knew his people would kill him. And that we know he did this for our sake. But his coming into Jerusalem in and of itself isn't that much to celebrate, right? <laughs> you, you get what I'm saying? Like, what was actually accomplished on that day of him coming into Jerusalem? What was accomplished was the start of the end, right? And so it's appropriate that we, it's appropriate that we remember that he did it. It was the start of his final days, and it started, those final days started with a loud celebration. But we know the end of the story, and we know that this celebration that we're remembering today, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, this celebration was misguided and premature, right? Misguided because they were ready to make him king by force. They didn't have any idea what Jesus' mission was. They didn't have any understanding of what he had come to accomplish, really. And premature because the real celebration is when he's raised, right? But each year we do remember Palm Sunday during a service, and each year we have the children sing Hosanna. Hosanna, that's right. And this year what I want to do, as I said a second ago, is I want to do something a little bit different. We're going to preach on the next passage of John, where we've already made it past the triumphal entry. So in John... We studied his entry into Jerusalem earlier, and we're in the middle, in the passage that we come to in John chapter 15, we're in the middle of what today we call Maundy Thursday. Not not Monday Thursday, kids. Maundy. Can you say Maundy? Maundy Thursday. Now, what in the world does Maundy mean? It's from, it's from Latin, right? What does it mean? I, heard, I, I think you just said something, Ben. Did you say something? You don't know. <laughs> I, just saw you, I just saw you say something. <laughs> yeah, it means command, commandment. So, 
Maundy Thursday means Command Thursday, which doesn't have nearly the, uh, the ring to it, right? Nobody wants to celebrate Command Thursday because we don't like commands. So we call it Maundy Thursday. Good way to celebrate, right? Change the name so nobody has any idea what you're talking about. Then when they come to church, you can tell them, we're celebrating a command. They're like, oh, no. And then you say, it's love. And they're like, yay, we all love love. Well, that is what the command is that Jesus gives. And that's what we've seen him repeat several times as we've been going through this passage in John and the previous passages. It takes place between Jesus' triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, and his crucifixion. And as we've seen, he is teaching his disciples in order to help them process what is coming, which is his crucifixion, without being thrown into confusion and despair. We also are in an in-between time. And there are both good and bad things coming, just like there were good and bad things coming for the disciples. And the bad things are coming before the ultimate good thing of our resurrection. And so let's learn from Jesus' teaching how to live during this time between celebrations and sorrows. And that's really where we are. We're between celebrations and sorrows. So please stand for the reading of God's word from John chapter 15, verses 12 through 27. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you, that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain. So that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. There's the command, right, kids? Command Thursday, that's what he said. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, Because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me 
hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. That last verse, 27, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning, is an example of one of the places in Scripture where there's ambiguity. Do you kids know what ambiguity means? Ambiguity means it could mean one thing or it could mean another thing. When something can mean two things, then you call it ambiguous. So, there's ambiguity in this, in this verse, and it is, you probably see a footnote in your, in your Bible. It says, and you will testify also. Or, it could be, because the Greek is ambiguous, it could be an imperative. An imperative means a command. So, here we go. Another command, it could say, and bear witness as a command. It might mean, and you will bear witness, and you will testify, or it might mean, and testify. You. And it's just not clear. It's not explicit in the Greek. Does that make sense to you? Well, this isn't a problem. There's all kinds of places where the Greek is ambiguous, and you, if you knew Greek, you would just read it, and you would see that it could mean both. But when you translate it into English, you have to pick which way you're going to translate it. And so it's helpful that they give us footnotes every once in a while for these sorts of things so that you can see and be like, oh, okay, it's, it's helpful for me to keep in mind that it could mean both of those things as I read this. So as Jesus speaks to his disciples, he's, in a sense, he's giving them both a command and a promise there. He's saying, you must testify and you will testify. Does that make sense? It's the, the indicative and the imperative kind of brought together in one word there. You, you will testify. Testify! Well, Jesus... 
Jesus has entered into Jerusalem, and he's talking about in this passage that his works went before him, testifying about him. Notice he, he talks about what the people had seen, that he had done works that had, no one else had ever done before. Those are the signs that he had performed. And <clears throat> so he's talking about his own testimony. He's talking about the testifying that he did. He's, talk about, he's talking about the testifying that his works did. He's talking about the testifying that his disciples will and must do. And it's in this context that he speaks about love as well, the necessity of them loving one another. Well, so as Jesus entered Jerusalem, his works had gone before him. Everybody knew about this Jesus. They had heard about what he had done. They had, they had many of them seen, been a part of these crowds. Where he, had, where he had fed thousands of people from just a few loaves, or who had been healed themselves, or knew someone who had been healed, or had seen somebody later who had been healed. These people knew. They knew what Jesus had done, and so his works go before him, testifying about him, and the crowds respond by praising him. But shortly after that, in the same city... A different crowd responded by crucifying him, right? And in between, Jesus emphasizes to his disciples two things. One, that they must love one another. And two, that they will be hated by his enemies. Not their enemies, right? His enemies. They become their enemies. But they're Jesus' enemies. These are, the, these are a couple of the things that we see Jesus emphasizing to his disciples. Now, It's Palm Sunday. You think about that celebration. You think about the the praise, the shouts of Hosanna. You think about the, uh, the letting loose that the Jews did. And, and again, the Jews, they know how to celebrate better than we do. We, we just think too much of our own dignity to celebrate. <clears throat> And some of you kids are prematurely old, worried about your own dignity. Don't worry so much about what other people think about you. Praise God. Let loose a little. If you can't let loose a little, it indicates that you're worried more about yourself than you are about, and what you'll look like in front of other people than you are about praising God. 
And we are to testify. So the people, as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, remember I said his works go before him, testifying about who he is, but also the people who are celebrating, the people who are shouting Hosanna, they are testifying about who Jesus is. And that's absolutely appropriate. We must testify. And our testifying will produce the same two kinds of responses that Jesus produced. You understand? On the one hand, he produced love from the disciples. Now, that's something that we have to work at, right? That's part of what I'm saying. Don't be so worried about yourself. Give love to God. Love Jesus Christ. Loving each other means loving those within the family of God. In other words, our love for one another will be a testimony. Our love for one another will testify to the love that Christ had for his people. It was Jesus' love that led him into Jerusalem in peace to his own destruction. It was his love that brought about that great fruit, which we keep running into, this concept of fruitfulness in John, right? It was his love that brought about that great fruit, our own salvation. So Jesus talks about love being necessary for his disciples as the fruit of his works. And then he talks about that love being their testimony. They are to love one another. And then he says that the world will hate them. So that's the second response that Christ's testimony produces and that our testimony produces. Hatred from Christ's enemies has to be expected by us. Jesus said that it would happen. And he not only said that it would happen, he, said, he explained that logically there's no reason to expect it won't happen. Because we're not better than Jesus. Right? Does that make sense? I mean, if you're just talking about logic, if Jesus is at the, you know, the top, he gets everything just right, and people hate him, and then we're like, you know, somewhere not quite as good, not really even remotely as good as Jesus, at doing the things Jesus calls us to do, right? Why in the world do we think we would be able to 
do those things that, that miserably bad way and manage to keep people from hating us. If you do it just perfectly, people are going to hate you. Often, criticism of how other people are testifying is actually criticism of the response that people are hating them, that people are offended, right? Have you guys run into this before? You see the... You see the accusations of, well, you're too young. But I'm glad you're listening and answering my questions. (laughs) I don't know if any of you guys ever watched that old Rob Bell NUMA video, Megaphone, about the guy who's out doing street preaching. And if you, if you haven't, uh, it's, really, it's really quite amazing how effective it is at convincing you that you should never, ever testify publicly and that you should never, ever, 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 ever have anybody offended because of your testifying. But Jesus says exactly the opposite here, right? Are you testifying faithfully? Well, if people are being offended, that doesn't prove anything, okay? If people are being offended, that doesn't prove that you are testifying faithfully, and it also doesn't prove that you're doing it wrong. And we've got to get both of those things into our minds and be absolutely sure about both of those things, right? Calvin goes off on the Anabaptists at this point and is like, they think that because people hate them, that that proves that they're doing the right thing. He says, no, it doesn't, it doesn't prove anything. Well, likewise, today we need to be worried that we think that we're doing it right because nobody's offended. People being offended, or, or rather, thinking that, that it proves we've done it wrong if people are offended. That's what we're tempted to do today, Right? So if it doesn't prove anything, people being offended, then what do we learn from what Jesus said? Well, Jesus said his followers wouldn't be better than him. And he had people offended and said it would happen to his followers as well. So in other words, if nobody is offended... That does prove something, according to Jesus' logic, right? People being offended doesn't prove anything one way or another, but but nobody being offended proves something. 
Jesus said people would be offended. Where do we see that in our passage? If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. A slave is not greater than his master. That's, that's got to be central in our minds. Palm Sunday. People shouting, singing Hosanna, praising Jesus, and the Pharisees are all offended. Like, Jesus. Don't you hear what the people are saying? Can't you get them to stop? What is that? They think they're better than Jesus. Do we think that we're better than Jesus? That we are above that kind of celebration? Are we worried about offending people? through our testifying. You see, you see how those two things go together? The Pharisees were offended at the testifying of Jesus' works. The Pharisees were offended at the testifying of the people who shouted hosanna. Today people will be offended when we testify of what Jesus has done in our lives. What we have here is we have victory. Here we are in Holy Week, right? And we know, like I said, the end of the story. And and we've got victory snatched from the jaws of defeat, snatched from the jaws of victory. You've got Jesus coming into Jerusalem victoriously, right? It looks like the great final celebration, victory, everybody's excited. Now is when he's going to restore the kingdom to Israel, right? And then suddenly defeat at the crucifixion. And suddenly resurrection and ascension. Jesus was raised, but before that, he was crucified. But before that, his entry was celebrated. And the people were ready to make him king by force. Could you imagine that Christ would be crucified after the triumphal entry? You watch the triumphal entry. You're a part of the triumphal entry. And if Jesus says to you, now in just a few days, it's going to come time for the crowds to crucify me, you'd think he's mad. Right? This is really what we've seen. Peter is like, wait, 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 wait. No, 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 no. 
It's hard to imagine after the triumphal entry that his crucifixion was coming. So were the people dumb to praise him at his entry? If they had known that he was going to be crucified, should they have tempered their celebration, not not celebrated, not rejoiced? No, of course not. They should have had a they should have had a better understanding of what they were celebrating, right? They would have if they were us living after the fact, right? <laughs> But we still celebrate. We still celebrate who Jesus is. And then he's crucified. And would you ever imagine that he would rise again after he was crucified? You know, you never imagined that such a great defeat could come after such a great victorious entry. And you never imagined that such a great victory could come after such a great defeat. Am I right? The disciples couldn't imagine it. If anybody could have imagined that Jesus was going to turn that defeat into a victory, it would have been the disciples, right? He had told them explicitly what was going to happen. But they're like, hiding, scared, right? You remember between the crucifixion? There, it was, God was very gracious to make that a short time frame, right? Because, <laughs> you know, there was no victory going on among the disciples. There was no testifying going on. Thankfully, those days were short. Three days and three nights. The sign of Jonah was given, and then victory. And you never would have expected it. Were they dumb to be scared? Were they dumb to hide? No more than us, right? But... Then he's raised... And Jesus promises that his kingdom will prevail against the gates of hell. But what do we see in our passage? We also see in our passage that he promises that we will be hated and persecuted. Now, does that mean that we should be depressed? Does that mean that we should be fearful? The moment I start talking about the fact that, you know, if you're actually testifying, people are going to hate you, what is your initial, immediate, natural reaction? Oh, great. Am I right? Who likes being hated? Everybody raise your hand if you like being hated. Not a one. Nobody likes being hated. How many of you like being depressed, though? Some of you like being depressed. You've got to admit that. Raise your hand. Some of you like that. All right. <clears throat> How many of you like having an excuse to be depressed? 
Yes. We all have to raise our hands with that, right? Like, I, I, can, I can justify being grumpy and fearful and angry and upset all the time. Yeah, I, you know, give me that excuse. And I say, okay, here's a great excuse. If you testify, people are going to hate you. But you're not allowed to use that excuse because you're not allowed to respond with depression and anger and fear. Here we are. It's Palm Sunday. We're looking back on it, and I'm walking you through the week, right? And, And the highs and the lows are astounding. But we don't live through them. We live after the fact. We live looking back, knowing the whole story. And then, as I said from the beginning, right, we also live in the middle of celebrations and sorrows. And that's what, the, that's what the disciples are going through. You know, you come to these highs, like we're entering into Jerusalem, is this amazing celebration, and you're like, can you imagine looking around? The... This is great. The kingdom is about to come. And so then they start arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom, right? They don't have any idea what the kingdom is. But they're going to figure out who's going to be number one and number two and number three. But here we are, we're looking back. He promises that we will be hated and persecuted. And then, before that, he commands that we must love one another. Now, Is that encouraging? The command that we love one another. It ought to be encouraging to us. Because what does it mean to love one another? You brothers and sisters, you you kids, you need to figure this out. What it means to love one another. We've just what was our memory verse this last week? Who knows what our memory verse was? Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, right? First verse is about what you have to stop doing. Anger, bitterness, and clamor, and wrath, and slander, and malice. All these things are the things that you naturally do when you're fighting with each other. All those things we have to stop, and then the, and then the second verse is what? Things we're supposed to do, be kind to one one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. What does tender-hearted mean? Soft, soft soft-hearted? To be soft-hearted is hard, right? (laughs) When your sister punches you. Some sisters are known to do this. When your sister punches you, and then she says that she's sorry, do you want to forgive her? Do you want to have a tender heart towards your sister after she punches you? No. You don't. You want to be hard still, right? You want to 
keep the anger there and the clamor and the, and the wrath and the, and the bitterness? You mean she gets to punch me and get away with it? I just have to forgive her? What's that? That's bitterness. Now, what's my point? Well, my point is here, this is the, the command that we've been given is to love one another. And so, and so, do you kids love each other? If you love each other, that is a testimony. It's a testimony to Jesus Christ. The watching world sees that Jesus is at work in your life. And so our testifying is in part that love. And in part, it's that we respond when, he, when, when we're hated because of the testimony, right? That we have confidence in the promise of Christ. And that he's going to keep his promises one way or another. Now, let's return for a second to Egypt. Because here we are, not suffering, right? And yet, right now, in Egypt, there are people who are suffering, Christians who have lost loved ones. So is Jesus keeping his promise? Well, yeah, because what did he say? If they hated me first, they will hate you. So he's keeping his promise, right? And yet, how are we supposed to live with that sort of promise? Well, looking back at this triumphal entry, the commands that Jesus gives to his disciples immediately between that and his crucifixion and then the resurrection, this gives us a hint for how we're supposed to live today. Okay, Because even Jesus' resurrection and ascension doesn't bring the final victory, does it? We still all have to face difficult things. We still all have to face testifying, and having people hate us for it. We still all have to face the command to love one another, and yet struggling against our sinful lusts of our flesh that lead us to hate one another. Right? And so the final victory has not yet been won. We live just like the disciples lived between the triumphal entry and the resurrection, with the misery of the crucifixion in the middle, yet to come, right? We also live in between the resurrection and the final resurrection, with the misery of death in between, right? So how do we live? Well, we live confidently. Jesus' 
Christ is going to keep his promises. And that he will keep them whether that's through the darkness of a crucifixion or through the resurrection and ascension. That he will keep them through the scattering that happens when he's crucified or the growth of his church that happens on the day of Pentecost. Right? You guys see this? There's these, there's these highs and these lows that come. And if you think that you've got some sort of view of the end times that means that everything's going to keep getting better and better, let me just remind you, you're going to die. You understand? Like, I don't care whether you're premillennial or amillennial or postmillennial. Your view has to include the fact that there's still you're still living in between two big celebrations, right? And with some nasty stuff yet to come. <laughs> Unless, by God's grace, Christ comes right now. Or now. All right. Well, we wait. And, and we wait by faith. And we wait celebrating. And we wait testifying. And we wait living in that in-between. And Christ's church will defeat the gates of hell. That's absolutely true. But sometimes that happens through the destruction of Jerusalem and the scattering of the people. Right? And sometimes that happens through the great ingathering of 3,000 souls on the day of Pentecost. And which would you rather have? Well, man, if I had my pick, we'll go with the latter, right? <laughs> but our hope is in Jesus Christ. And so we, we can come on, on in, the, in the in-between time, right? Here on Palm Sunday, and we can celebrate. And we celebrate knowing that, yes, maybe next year bombs are going off here. We don't know. We don't know what the future holds. Only God knows what the future holds. We can celebrate knowing that even if that's not happening, we do know at least one thing, which is that if we testify, his enemies will be our enemies and will hate us. And we can celebrate knowing that, number one, that's not surprising to Jesus. Number two, he actually told us that it would happen. And number three, he is using it 
to bring about, on the one hand, love among his people that builds up his church and brings about the fruit that he commands, and number two, hate that brings about the guilt of his enemies and brings their condemnation down on their heads. And when I say that, I know that you're on the, you know, that that makes you uncomfortable, right? But that gives God glory. And honestly, when you hear about somebody bringing a bomb to church and killing people, what do you want? You want justice. And you want God to glorify himself. And you want him to bring it to an end with that great victory. And that great victory is a victory over what? His enemies. And so we want that victory. We want that day of celebration. Right? Let's pray.